if you've ever taught your child to ride a bike or tried to teach your child to swim, you've probably had the experience where you're going along and they're starting to get it. They're starting to get that sense of balance and you're like, okay, I think, you know, I can stop running alongside and I can just let go and they can kind of take off on their own. And then when they realize that they have let, that you've let go, I, I don't know if you've had this happen where they kind of lunge back towards you, their safety net, and you're like, well, that, that destroys the whole thing here. You've lost your balance again. I think uh, this has been a tough season for our world, our nation, and our church. Yesterday we had the second of two memorial services in a row um, of a church member. And uh, that's not to mention all the extended family that we mentioned we are praying for today. It's, it's been a tough season of disruption, of loss, um, of change, change in our church family. And it has people unsettled. And I, I feel like in some cases God's like, all right, we're on the bike of discipleship and you're learning to get your balance. And then when you start to realize that, hey, this thing's really taken off, you get a little nervous and you lunge for your safety net. And for some people, their safety net is politics and general fear or some of their safety net is just just getting frustrated and angry they don't know what to do and uh church we we have an opportunity here a unique opportunity because this has been tough life has been tough for you your your work economic uncertainty political uncertainty it has been tough there's no doubt about that but you're a disciple of jesus christ you serve at the pleasure of our King Jesus and we have to dig deep and find out what our faith is truly made of and if you read the majority of the New Testament they were letters written to Christians in crisis they weren't letters written to people who were lounging on a hammock on the beach they were written to people who were struggling with social unrest racial unrest drastic changes in churches does this sound familiar at all And Paul and Peter and John still wrote to these people that you have this high calling in Christ. And that's us. That's us right now. We are in that moment. And we are figuring out what we are truly made of as disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's just, we should just offer an invitation right there, right? Let's just, let's wrap it up. And some of you are like, amen, short sermon. I got a little more I want to talk about. But I just think we need to be reminded occasionally of the fact that we're, we're disciples. Like, God is going to let go of the back of the bicycle and let's not lunge in our fear for the security blanket of whatever politics or whatever else that is going on uh, in your life. All right, Matthew chapter 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18. If you have your Bibles, you can power them up, log on, open up that app. If you have a flip Bible, that's awesome. I love it. That's my favorite. Matthew 28, 18. This is, a, this is a familiar passage. We're in our third week of preaching through this. And we do this terrible thing with this passage because we really like 19 and 20. And we just kind of like gloss over verse 18. We just don't really give it a lot of thought. But we've been really trying to dig into verse 18. And so Jesus, he, he meets his 11, conspicuously 11, not 12, on a mountain in, in Galilee. You know, he's, everything's happened in Jerusalem, and now they're moving up to Galilee. And he meets them there, and he comes to them, and he says, all authority has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. 
And so we've been talking about that idea of authority and how does that authority fit into our discipleship and our faith. Because we as, you know, modern Western Americans, we're not real excited about authority. But if you follow, remember, you follow the dotted trail, the breadcrumbs through Scripture, through the Old Testament. The, the story of the world is that humans have made a mess of things and God keeps promising, I will send someone to straighten it all out, and then you follow that bread, that trail of breadcrumbs through human history, and you get to the feet of Jesus on the mountain in Matthew 28, 18, where he steps in front of his 11, and he says, all authority has been given to me. I am that figure. I am the Messiah. I am the King, and we have to decide as disciples whether or not we are going to live like that. He's, he's a benevolent emperor. He's a benevolent dictator, and we get to decide whether or not we follow him, but he will transform our lives if we do. So that's where we are. Matthew 28, 18. We've been talking about authority. How does this work in our lives? What should authority look like? If we really serve at the pleasure of the king, what does that mean? But then we haven't yet dealt with verses 19 and 20. And, and honestly, I was like, boy, we'll get into 19 and 20, but people have heard those verses. Even if you're not a longtime churchgoer, these have the air of familiarity to you. Um, and for longtime churchgoers, we just kind of like, you know how we have a sh mental shorthand? So we read a certain verse and we're like, oh yeah, I know what that means. And I think we often miss the, the complexity and the subtleties of what is happening here because we're like, oh yeah, I've heard this verse before, I kind of get it. So let's go ahead and read it, and then let's talk about what we may be missing. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. So this is Jesus, all authority. He's on the mountain. Imagine we're not on a little mound of grass here, but it's Jesus, and he's declaring all authority, and we're the disciples, and we're at his feet. All authority has been given to me. If you didn't know what verses 19 and 20 said, I don't think we would have guessed at verses 19 and 20. This is what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I think that when we read that verse... We hear something like, get out there and share your faith. I think that's what we hear. Get out there and share your faith. If you've been uh, around church and somebody is like, well, the Greek word or the whatever, the technical term, the theological term, you've heard the word evangelize. You should go evangelize. Um, if you're really old school, do you know what term they used to use all the time? We don't use this all, a lot anymore, but they used to say, we should, go, you know, you need to be soul winning soul winning. That was the term for like old school. Yeah, soul winning. So I think we hear this verse and we think evangelize, soul winning, share your faith, something like that. But the call here that Jesus declares all authority for is something I think more than those things. Those are part of it, but it's more than that. Now this is going to sound like a surprise to you, but in the past, the not too distant church history, so you're talking about, I don't know, a couple hundred years, uh, the average disciple did not think that they had to share their faith. So we kind of get that today. We know that maybe there's some sort of thing in the back of our minds that we should talk to our friends and our neighbors, and we should invite them to church, or we should casually bring up Jesus in a conversation. We know that should happen. It probably doesn't happen very often, but we know it should happen. Um, but a couple hundred years ago, they, the average churchgoer, the average Christian, the average disciple did not think they were supposed to share their faith with anybody else. I know that sounds odd to us, like, oh, that, doesn't, what? that doesn't make sense. Yeah, they thought you were just born into whatever strand of faith you were born into. So if you were tall, you were born tall. If you were born with red hair, you were born with red hair. If you were born Catholic, you were born Catholic. There wasn't any, like, you don't, you, don't, you don't try to renegotiate any of that. In fact, if you ever did leave one strand of faith for another strand of faith, it was kind of a big deal. You were, like, kind of prying yourself away from your family, and, you know, there'd be tears, and 
Your mother and father would be like, you know, we are generations of this and you're, you can't leave. And even in those cases, it would generally only be like clergy who would maybe walk somebody from one strand of faith to another or from outside of faith to inside of faith. Let me give you a quick example. My dad was born Irish Catholic in Scotland. And so Irish Catholics, primarily in Ireland, they had migrated over to Scotland. And so he was a young Catholic kid in Protestant Scotland. And he lived above some Protestant boys his age, Catholics, Protestants, and didn't get along real well in the 50s. And so he never played with the boys downstairs. Now, his mom never said, do not play with those Protestant boys. You just knew that you didn't mix with the Protestants. The Catholics and the Protestants didn't mix. In fact, my dad tells me this and with some embarrassment now. Uh, one St. Patrick's Day, he and some of the boys were out and they were just feeling the spirit of St. Patrick. And one of the boys got all wound up and he picked up rocks and he started throwing rocks at the Protestants. And my dad said he got involved and he was throwing rocks at the Protestants. You didn't think, hey, maybe I'm right, they're wrong, I should convert them. You're just like, here's a rock, I should throw it at somebody that disagrees with me. It wasn't like an idea of conversion. It was just like, you're born into that, I'm born into this, we should throw rocks at each other. That was kind of the bottom line of all that. Now, uh, and I just want you to know very emphatically that even, um, I don't know, 50 years later, I don't know what the math is there, 60 years later, he still feels guilty about throwing rocks at the Protestants, and I'm sure if he could find those, those kids, he would uh, apologize. He was eight at the time, so cut him some slack. So for hundreds of years, you know, you just didn't share your faith. You, in fact, when people read Matthew 28, 18, they would read it and they would see, yeah, Jesus was talking to the apostles, so just the apostles are supposed to share their faith. Well, this guy named William Carey came along. May ring some faint bells in your mind. William Carey came along, and he's reading Matthew 28, 18. And he's like, you know what? I think we're getting this wrong. And he wrote a book about this. In fact, the book is um, called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. I don't know if anybody's ever read that, but that's like, basically it's the whole book right there in the title. That's how they used to do things back in the day. You just got the whole thing out right there. And his, his premise was this. He was like, wait a second. Baptism is supposed to be for everybody, and that's in that passage. Um, teaching is supposed to be for everybody, and that's in that passage. Obedience is supposed to be for everybody, and that's in that passage. He's like, I think the going is also supposed to be for everybody. And then he literally moved to India for 40 years and started a college and, you know, did all that, converted. And he's kind of uh, acknowledged as the father of modern missions. But he's the, the figure that you can look back to and you can say that was the point at which people were like, you know what? I have a neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus. I should probably tell him about Jesus. That was the beginning of this like shift in thinking in, uh, in, in how we bring people into a relationship with Christ. So his big shift, this is it. This is the big theological shift, and I know this probably isn't a big deal for you, but I want to point out how vestiges of this are still among us. His big shift was it wasn't just apostles who needed to be discipling. It was, listen, it was disciples who needed to be discipling, not just the, the, the professionals who needed to be discipling. It was any disciple who needed to be discipling. Hmm. That was a big shift. Let this sink in. What William Carey, and I think I agree with him, what William Carey was saying, that Jesus was saying in Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20, is that to be a disciple, so if you're like, yeah, I think I'm a disciple, therefore to be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. That means your responsibility 
is to disciple other people. Okay, well, I don't know. I mean, because I got a full-time job. I've got kids, laundry, cars in the shop. On top of everything else, you're laying this guilt trip about me having to share my faith with my neighbors. I mean, do I have to move to India too like he did? Do I have to go out on the mission field? Do I have to, how do I fit disciple-making on top of everything else? In fact, I mean, what do we pay you and Steve and Caleb and Logan to do if we're supposed to do all the disciple-making around here? Now, if you've ever worked in ministry, you've heard those kinds of expectations. And isn't that interesting? That goes back to that Victorian-era expectation that the clergy, the professionals, were supposed to be the ones that were doing it, but not the average person, not the average churchgoer. We tend to interpret or dismiss Matthew 28, 18 as saying, 28, 19 to 20 as saying, uh, just share your faith or this is just a job for the staff. But I want to think through what Jesus is actually saying here. Um, some of you know very uh, acutely that I am very bad at general like grammar. So if you see a typo in like something on Facebook or Instagram, it's because I'm the one that, that did it and it's, it's embarrassing. I'm very bad at it. I, I, do you remember uh, diagramming sentences back in the day? Well, I don't know what age you do that. I don't know. Is it elementary school, middle school? Um, I, I, even to this day, I just treated them like fill in the blanks. And I just put words in different spots hoping I was getting close. I, I'm sure I was a nightmare to teach as a child. Um, <laughs> as an adult, too, for that matter. Um, but I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I, I, I just, grammar's not been my thing. But I want to try to, like, think about the grammar of this sentence, acknowledging that I'm not a big grammar person. So he says, just imagine this, just imagine the, the phrase, make disciples, in this passage, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So you got that phrase, right? That's actually one word in the Greek, and it's a verb, and this, didn't, this isn't really a word, although it's entering into our vernacular, but you could just use the word discipling. So go discipling, be discipling as a, as a verb. And then if you imagine participles, which I had to look up what participles are, but if you imagine participles, which they're verbs that also modify other verbs, so going, teaching, and baptizing are all underneath this concept of discipling. So discipling is the main emphasis here. So we as disciples, we need to go discipling. So here's the flow of thought in this verse. Disciple everyone, baptizing them, teaching them, going to them. That's the emphasis. So maybe in your minds you picture like, oh yeah, I, I was at the park the other day and I saw a Jehovah's Witness with the cart and the JW.org and they were waiting for somebody to come along that they could talk to. Or, oh yeah, I remember uh, there, there were some, some young Mormon elders on our street with the white shirts and the ties. Those guys were like, they were going out. They were doing, that's, that's what I tend to think of. Or how many of you are old enough to remember back in the day when the Hare Krishnas were at the airport? You know, anybody could just wander in and out of the airport and you would get off the plane and there were those guys in the robes and they had the flowers. If you remember that, it doesn't happen. If you were born in like the last 20 years, you probably have never seen that. But that's what we think of. Like, oh yeah, they're the ones who are going out and they're kind of doing their thing, sharing their faith, whatever, proselytizing, whatever that phrase is. But what Jesus is saying, that's not what he says. He's not saying spread the gospel, share your faith, talk to strangers about Jesus, be a missionary. He's not saying that. And those things may be part of the process. But what he actually says is be discipling. That's what he says. Be discipling. To be a disciple is to what? Follow Jesus. Pursue Jesus. 
That's what to be a disciple. That's what for me, if I actually claim that concept as an identity, for me to be a disciple is for me to try to figure out what it means and what it looks like for me in my life to follow Jesus. For me to be discipling someone else is for me to help figure out what it looks like for someone else to pursue Jesus. A parent to figure out what that looks like for their child. A husband to fig help fig figure out what that looks for a wife, a wife for their husband. But to, to disciple someone isn't simply a presentation of facts. Here's the five steps. Here's how you get to heaven when you die. To disciple someone is to thoughtfully and deliberately help someone desire to pursue Christ. That's what it is to disciple someone else. Thoughtfully and deliberately. What is it for them that will pique their interest, their curiosity, their desire to follow Christ? I want to tease out a really important distinction here that I think that we struggle with as Christians and as historically have struggled with as a church. Liam and I have been doing a ton of, uh, I don't know, you could call them experiments. Is that fair to call them, buddy? Experiments at home. And so we're just learning all kinds of stuff. You know, he'll be like, well, he, he's been uh, writing books. And so I've been his, uh, his editor, which, <laughs> grammar, that's great, right? But <laughs> I'm making them worse in terms of typos. But he's been, so he's been writing books, you know, hey, tell me the story and I'll type it up. Or he's been doing little science experiments and the other day he decided to see how well does toilet paper go down the bathroom sink. And it doesn't go down well at all. It really, actually does a really good job of clogging it up. So we learned, learning is fun. We learned something, we learned something new. Um, and so we're taking apart little, like he had a broken remote control car. We took it apart and messed with the, all that kind of stuff. The other day I'm chatting with, uh, with my neighbor. It's fun when you have a kid and you can just like experiment and see what's exciting to them and what, you know, who knows what they're going to be. Engineer, a novelist, a plumber, or the opposite of a plumber, whatever it is. It's just fun to experiment and just learn all that. He's eight, he's got plenty of time, he doesn't have to pick a major yet, but it's fun. It's fun to just navigate that. I'm talking to my next door neighbor the other day and he, like most of Woodbury, works at 3M and so I'm asking him what he does, like I'm going to have any clue because he's going to use a bunch of science-y words and it's not going to make sense. But he talks about how he works in adhesives and his job is to figure out how to glue an electric battery in a car so that it won't blow up. And I'm like, well, so what does that mean that you have to do? And he's like, well, it's kind of cool. We got these rooms and they got these big glass shields and we put the batteries in there and we try to blow them up. And I'm like, that actually sounds, that's awesome. The way he explained that, and he only got a couple scientific terms in there that I didn't understand, but I'm like, that sounds really cool. So I go back to Liam and I'm like, hey, this guy across the street has a job where he goes to work every day and tries to blow things up. Doesn't that sound cool? That sounds awesome. Now, with Liam and with any of child, you know, I've got a 12th grader and we're starting to navigate, like, what is the career path forward going to be? Now, with Liam, as we're just trying to develop his interests and figure all those things out, I could get out an Excel spreadsheet and I could be like, well, here, Liam, here's the return on investment. Here's how much it would cost you to get an engineering degree from this institution. And here's how much it would pay off to uh, how much it would, it, it, how, how long it would take to pay off that loan. And here's how much you would, money you would make. And you could go into engineering or here's how a technical school you could get into plumbing. And here's what you'd make. And here's the job market. And, or here's the, you know, the job market. I could do all those things or we could just go do stuff and try it out and see what works and see what sticks and see what sparks his interest. I could either try to convince him with facts, which isn't bad, or I could try to capture his imagination. And I think parents, that's one of the joys of parenting is that you get to see your kids experience something and it begins to capture their imaginations. 
It is not wrong to try to convince someone with facts and statistics, but I think our churches have over-indexed on that approach to discipleship. We've gone to people and we have said, here's why I am right and here's why you are wrong and here are the 10 verses spread out through the Bible that prove I'm right and then they're going to show us their verses that prove they're wrong. We've been going back and forth as if discipleship was this convince approach when it seems like what discipleship should be is helping someone's heart become oriented toward Christ. And maybe for them, maybe the logic approach is really going to work. Or maybe I just need to invite a neighbor over and actually get to know them and learn what makes them tick and help them understand how Christ is going to change their lives and transform them and make them something new. There's nothing wrong with the convince approach. I think many of us here owe our spiritual heritage to someone who was your grandfather, your great-grandfather, someone who saw like a chart or a bunch of verses or heard a presentation and they were convinced. But I want us to be captured, our hearts to be captured by Jesus Christ. Parents, you want that for your kids? You want your kids, you want to capture, you want Jesus to have captured your children's hearts so that when they launch off into the world, that they are navigating the world in a way that they continue to follow Jesus because their imagination, their desires, their impulses are all bound up in discipleship. You don't want them to just have a back pocket with some verses that they're going to go to in certain situations. You want their hearts to be captured. I think Jesus on the mountain with those disciples, he was saying, you are going to go out in the world and there are going to be so many people that haven't had the last three years of experiences that you have had. They haven't seen what you have seen. And you are going to go out in the world and you need to take that experience and you need to help capture people's hearts and imaginations and turn their desires and orient them toward me. I have an old uh, Church of Christ handbook on soul winning. They use the term soul winning in the book. It's about 70 years old, and it's all this convince approach. Uh, In fact, I tried to flip through it to find the word disciple, and the word disciple is nowhere in the pages of this book. It just wasn't part of the vocabulary 70 years ago. It was a word, but it just wasn't part of the the thought process about what it means to share your faith. And uh, so chapter one is called Winning People to Christ. And I want to read an excerpt that I think helps highlight the distinction I'm trying to make here. Uh, So this is what he he says. We have a message that the world needs. Amen. Yeah, we do, don't we? We That's so true. We have a message that your neighbors need, that your children need, that your grandchildren need, that your husband, that your wife needs. We have that. He goes on to say, Christ has prescribed a remedy for tears, heartaches, depression, blues, crime, and sin. All right, it's not exactly how we'd phrase it. You know, Christ has a remedy for the blues. He's very, he's emphasizing, sounds like Jesus will make you happy kind of thing, which I don't know that that's something that we, we think about, but okay, I see what you're getting at. He goes on to say, many will receive this message. This is the very beginning page, first page. Many will receive this message if we go out and really, and then this section is in all caps, if we go out and really sell them on it. Sell them on it. And he uses an analogy like people go door to door selling washing machines and books and that's what we need to do with Jesus. I don't think we need to sell people on Jesus. 
Now, I know, I know some of you were drawn into a relationship with Christ because somebody very convincing sold you and the Spirit worked that out and made, turned your heart and it worked out and God can do big, powerful things. But I don't think our goal as disciples is to sell people on Jesus. I don't think that's what it's about. I don't think it's about highlighting all the positives and minimizing all the negatives. In fact, I, I, I mean, I get it. I love the convince approach because I like arguments. I think it's fun to argue. I don't know. I know some of you aren't like that, but I love it. I, it makes, I, I've been in situations where I was clearly making somebody uncomfortable because I'm just like, this is fun. It's fun to argue about this stuff. It does, don't take it personally. You're wrong, but don't take it personally. But if someone's heart is captured by Christ, you really don't need a lot of arguments. Most of the book that I was telling you about, the, the, the second half of the book is arguments for baptism. That was the big point of contention. Because do I have to be baptized? And why do I have to be baptized? And where and when and how and who? Those were all the arguments. And then the book gave you all the answers to those arguments about baptism. If someone's heart is captured by Christ, there's not a lot of arguments about baptism. You know, their questions aren't, do I have to? If their heart is captured by Christ, the question is never, do I have to? The question is, Here's water. What prevents me? That's always been the question when someone's heart is captured. If you're having to talk them into baptism, then maybe their heart hasn't yet been captured by Christ. I want to wrap up by being really practical here um, because sometimes it actually helps to cast a vision for what this can look like because we're saying that you here on the lawn uh, or listening online later are the ones that need to be discipling your friends and neighbors and children and relatives. And so sometimes it helps just to actually imagine what this looks like. Uh, one of, I don't know, one of the, the verses of Scripture that I always captures my imagination is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11. I know in a discussion of discipleship, what is Deuteronomy? I mean, isn't that the, all the, the law and everything? But Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, verse 1 and verse 5, the author writes, he's like, you guys have had these amazing experiences in this wilderness. You've seen God in ways that... that other people haven't. But your children did not have these experiences. Your grandchildren did not have these experiences. And you need to figure out a way for them, he doesn't say this, these words, but you need to help them see reality. You need to capture their hearts because they didn't get to go through what we all got to go through together here in the wilderness as they're on the verge of uh, entering into the promised land. And then he says this in verse 19. He says, oh, excuse me, verse 18. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and your minds. Fix them. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And it's, it's so interesting. They, they took that literally, and I think he was just saying, soak your brains and hearts in Scripture, and they actually found ways to tie Scripture on their, their, their foreheads in these phylacteries, which is fine. You can do that too. But I think he was saying, just, just, just dig in. Get these truths into your hearts and minds. Verse 19, listen to this. This is so good. Parents, listen. Verse 19, teach them to your children. Well, how do I teach them to my children? Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. The first thing in the morning that you need to be discussing with your children is these truths about God. I mean, help their hearts to understand that this day is to be lived for the glory of God. And then when they lay down at night, help them understand that this day was a gift from God and to be grateful for it. When you're 
he says when you're walking, but when you're driving somewhere, how do we, how do we help our children's hearts be captured by God? He goes, verse 20, this is good. Write them on the door frames of your houses. Decorate your house with truth so that every time anyone enters your home, they're reminded of these realities. Now, do you really have to write them on the door frames of your house? No, but it just needs to permeate everything. He goes, um, he write, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Landscape with the truth so that you're constantly reminded. And what I think he's describing is a person whose heart is captured by God, who lives a life that helps other people's hearts be captured by God. I think that's discipling. I think that's what God is asking us to do. In our small group, um, small groups started this week, but we've been meeting off and on every other week through the summer. I always try to start off with a 1 Corinthians 12 approach in our small group, so I just ask the group, like, hey, what's God doing in your life? What's God, what truths are God revealing? Like, what, how, how are you, you know, how is God working things out in your life? And just to check in, see, see what people are up to. And uh, this week I was so encouraged because we had a, a couple of group members answer some of the things that God was doing in their lives. And I think these are discipleship. Whether or not we put these in that category, I think that's what these are. Uh, so Kim Olean is here today. She was talking about, she's got this friend named Sophia, and she had emailed me the other day like, hey, Sophia's thinking about getting baptized. What's, what do we got to do to make that happen? And I'm like, oh, what do you got to do? You got to get down here and get in the water. That's what you got to do. Like, this is so exciting. She's talking to this friend and just like, how do I figure this out? How do, see, here's the problem. Let me stop here for a second. Here's the problem. When we have the convince approach, like I just have to prevent the facts and the statistics, and I got to just lay this all out. So many of you are like, I don't have enough knowledge myself, so I don't know how to present it to somebody else. And then some of you are like, but I don't want to get into an argument. And some of you are like, I don't have the authority to speak that truth into somebody else's life. That's the downside to the convince approach. But if you're just a friend trying to help another friend's heart be captured by Jesus, then when they say, what do I got to do to be baptized? You're like, I don't know. Let me ask my preacher. I'll email him real quick and we'll find out together. You don't have to know. You can just walk this path together. So Kim is emailing me about Sophia wanting to get baptized. How awesome is that? Let's do it anytime, anywhere. Kim is also a mother, three children who are a handful occasionally, right? Is that fair to say? Um, some more than others. And, uh, and she's, she's got a book study, a, a book study going with friends, and she's posting every day prayers and encouragements for women. At, you want Instagram, at Women's First Moments. Women's, moments for, women's First Moments? Yeah, get on there and follow along. That's what she's doing to try to redirect people's hearts, other mothers' hearts towards God. That's awesome. That's so awesome. It doesn't take a degree. It doesn't take knowing all the verses. It takes just actually feeling that yourself and then trying to help that, impart that to somebody else. And Nick Mayer is an electrician. Sorry, Nick, I probably shouldn't have said that because now everybody's going to come talk to you about, hey, I need you to rewire my, my, my house for free. Don't ask him to do that. He does a lot for people. Um, he was at a, a house in Minneapolis earlier this week, or last week, and it was a, a single mom. His company policy is not to do this, so don't tell his bosses. I don't, I don't want to get him in trouble. But this single mom, and she was clearly struggling. Life was wearing her down, and life has been wearing people down right now. She was clearly struggling. And I don't know what the, the sensation was, but something prompted Nick to say, you know what, I think this is a moment where I should stop and ask her if I can pray for her. That's not the usual part of the house call when you're an electrician. It do, don't wrap up by 
hey, can I pray for you? But he did, and it was clearly moving. I mean, those are just those, those moments where God is using us to help someone else, help redirect their hearts toward him. As they're, just, they're just natural, everyday things. You don't have to schedule discipleship for three hours on a Friday morning. It's just, it, you just layer it over your life as you're walking on the road, as you lie down, as you get up, just like Deuteronomy 11 says. All right, let me wrap up with this. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was in my office this week. I'm, I'm thinking about my sermon, and I'm like, man, wouldn't it be? I was starting to get excited, you know. It's been a tough season, but I was starting to get really wound up because I was like, what if everybody at church really just got after this? What if everybody was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to burst out at church on Sunday morning, and I'm just going to be a disciple maker. And I was like, I just... This would be so cool if I could do that real great halftime speech and everybody was just so excited. They were just second half. We're going to get that. We're going to get after this. And so I was thinking, man, I started, started to do some math. And if there's one thing that I'm worse at than grammar, it's math. But I was like, well, if everybody at our church went out and started discipling and, and in a year discipled somebody, then carry the two minus the seven, then in, in two years, we would have 14,000 people at church. I was like, and so I went into Steve's office, and I was like, Steve, hey, check my math here. Steve goes, you're way off, buddy. You're not even close. So I was like, well, ta talk me through this. Like, like, help me figure out what this, this could look like. And he's like, all right. Now, Steve is an optimist as well. But we were like, let's, let's say not everybody at church got uh, captured uh, by discipleship, that had a vision for discipleship. Let's say half, just the adults, even though this, everybody can be involved. Teens, you can disciple. Did you know that? You can, you can disciple adults. Did you know that? You can, you can help adults' hearts be captured by Jesus. But anyway, let's just say just half the adults at our church. So I'm thinking, okay, how many adults do we have at our church? And I was thinking, how many emails do we send out a week? Okay, well, half of that. And so we're starting to do the, the numbers and figure out like, okay, half. And let's say it took them two years, not just one year, but two years. We're giving you extra time. It took Jesus three years, but we're thinking an average. Some of you are going to disciple people in like two months. Some of you are going to take 10 years. But let's say an average of two years. Does that seem fair? As long as we're just making numbers up, why not, right? Two years. All right, so you go out and you disciple someone in two years. You, you help reorient their heart toward Christ. You have coffee with them. You talk with them. You advise them. You just, you live life with them. And in two years, you've discipled them. And they're like, they're here. They're in. They're discipling somebody else. So just half our adults in two years. Well, we have seven disciple groups meeting right now. In two years, if we have an average of about 12 people in a disciple group, we would have 18 disciple groups meeting. That's totally doable, Right? That's not aspirational. I'm not being too crazy optimistic. 18 disciple groups in two years of people who are sold out to this vision. In two years, our Disciple Kids program would look like Saturday at the State Fair. I mean, they would be so jam-packed wall-to-wall in there. This would have to be post-COVID. But man, they would be like, it would be just wild. Logan would be like, guys, you got to build more room because this is ridiculous how many kids are here. We just have so many kids in two years. In two years, our parking would be a nightmare. It's already a nightmare, but we would have people parking all over the lawn and up and down Dale Street. I mean, it would just be a nightmare because we'd have so many cars. We'd have, we'd have multiple services, but even at that, we would just have to ferry people in. Just in two years, if just half our adults got a vision about discipleship. In, in four years, yeah, in four years, we would be doing a building project. We'd be like, man, we need more space. Or I would be preaching four jam-packed services a Sunday. Now, I'll tell you what, I, it, 
I would love to preach four times a Sunday. That would just get me so wound up. You think I'm wound up now? I would be so wound up, and then I would immediately take a nap after that. But I would just be so excited four times. Or we'd be like, you know what? We need to plant a church because we've got people driving in from different... we got our church that's spread all over, and they're discipling spread all over, and so we'd be planting a church somewhere else. That's what would be happening in four years. In ten years, in ten years, it just, it's mind-boggling. Now, so, some of you are like, Patrick, I don't care about that stuff. Four services a Sunday, that sounds awful. In fact, that sounds like the opposite. I kind of like, you know, I think, we think we need some people to leave. I need a little bit more elbow room. Whatever, forget you. If we were a church committed to Matthew 28 discipling, like I think Jesus is talking about here, if, if, if four services a Sunday isn't your thing, let me tell you, I think I have something that is your thing. If we were committed to Matthew 28 discipling, it's not about how many people are in the room. You know that, I know that, we all know that. But it's about the quality of these, these humans that, that we're living life with. If we were committed to that, and we were committed to this, this, this whole process, you would be providing your children the best opportunity to find stability, long-term stability in the faith, because you would be part of a church body, which I think is already true, but would even be more true, that is just dedicated to Jesus. And your children wouldn't just have you to look for as an example, but they would have so many other adults whose hearts are sold out to Jesus. Your children would have this just, just hundreds of people that you'd be like, I'd be so happy if you grew up and had a faith like them. You would be giving your children the best chance at a faith if you would give out and disciple people. You would be giving your marriage the best chance to thrive because you would be surrounded by strong, solid marriages that could pour into one another because we have become a church that is filled with people whose hearts are captured by Jesus. You would be transforming your community wherever you happen to live. I know we have people who drive a long way. You'd be transforming your community. People would know who we are. I'm so uh, discouraged when I talk to people. I'm like, oh, yeah, I work at the uh, church on the corner of Dale and Woodbury Drive. And they're like, you mean St. Ambrose? No, not St. Ambrose. No, you got to go further south. You mean Crossroads? No, <laughs> no, the other church. I don't think there's a church there. I drive by there all the time. There's no church. No, there's a church. We're behind the trees and we're there, Church of Christ. People would know we were here. If we had a church full of disciples whose hearts were captured by Jesus because we'd be making an impact into the community. We'd be taking on the support of new global missions because you guys are generous. You'd be even more generous and we'd be like, man, we've got to start works in other countries than what we're doing. We've got to help support these missionaries more than we are now. Mission Sunday, November 8th. Matthew chapter 28. Verses 18 through 20. This is the last sermon in our All Authority series. We're going to start a new sermon series next Sunday. Matthew chapter 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray.